Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It just so happens to be my show and I'm delighted to have you with me. The phone number, if you want to call in and chat, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We got a couple of folks who've been waiting very patiently on the line and I figure might as well start this hour, take their calls, beginning with Greg. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, how are you today? I'm good. What's going on? Good. So, one, I just wanted to say, since listening to you, I think I've become more of a more informed and well-rounded conservative, so I thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, So, in regards to the January 6th committee, and I know I'm a week late with this question, but I was under the impression it was just about getting to the bottom of, was there some kind of incitement on behalf of the president? But what are they doing calling Brad Raffensperger to come testify about stuff that happened months in advance, or, yeah, prior to that? That's a good question. Um, so my my understanding is that they're trying to prove, and I don't think they can, that there was a uh, it was an orchestrated effort for the Trump campaign to build a case of lies to incite people to march on the Capitol on January 6th. That if, for example, the president had just stood up there on January 6th and, and said, go down to the Capitol, that people wouldn't have done it, but by orchestrating a series of events after the election to make a case for the stolen election, that he used all of those things together to convince his base the election was stolen and have them march on the Capitol. Um, by the way, I, I, I've got to say uh, what my personal opinion is on this January 6th thing, and, and that very straightforward is that I don't know that we need this. I know there are people who feel very aggrieved, but there are people being prosecuted for entering the Capitol on January 6th. Let the prosecutors do their jobs. I, I don't need think we need some sort of truth and reconciliation commission when we know what happened. This is just a way for the Democrats to give the media something to talk about, and, and the Republicans are being complicit going on with it. Uh, at this point, we're not really doing any good there. Now, I am intrigued by the idea that there may be a uh, orchestrated uh, pattern and, and practice by some people. You know, they're looking at Steve Bannon and others. But at this point, to quote Hillary Clinton, what difference does it make? Really none. They're just that they want to continue to peddle the idea that the Republicans are the authoritarian party that want to prop up a dictatorship in this country. While meanwhile, it's a bunch of progressives hounding you out of your job because you dared to give money to Donald Trump. Uh, next, we go to Mark. Welcome to the program, Mark. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on. I'd sure. like to kind of piggyback uh, with what that gentleman was talking about, but uh, go more towards the uh, media and how the media had portrayed that information to the people that there was some kind of, you know, issues with the mail-in ballots and all this dragging out from under tables. And I know you had said that there was, you know, this was uh, clips. It wasn't the real video. And I think still a lot of people have not seen the real video, including myself. So I'm sure a lot of people would like to see. And this helps also move this movement to the January 6th attack because it helps solidify in people's minds that our election was stolen. Yeah, yeah. you know, Mark, that, I, I'm so. glad you said this because uh, I was having this conversation last week at an event I did where someone raised this issue. I mean, you all know I'm I'm – I'm pretty, I'm very decisively in the, the election was a stolen camp. Uh, and I say that so stridently, it sometimes comes across as 
I don't recognize there were voting irregularities. And there were. There are always voting irregularities in elections, though. Uh, I think the people who are seeing what they perceive to be irregularities think that they're unique to this election when, in fact, they happen in every single election uh, I've ever been a part of, either as a candidate or as a campaign consultant or as an elections lawyer. Uh, The voting irregularities happen all the time because elections are conducted by people who only conduct an election every other year tend to be senior citizens, oftentimes using new technology, and uh, we're all sinners, so we all make mistakes. Uh, That being said, to your specific point on the video, I think what the media did is kind of to a degree what, like I've done, is shutting down the conversation and say, look, it wasn't stolen. Yes, there were problems, but it wasn't stolen. The media just wants you to say it wasn't stolen, but then they never want to actually explain some of the details of what's actually going on. So take, for example, the Fulton County situation in Georgia that everybody nationally is familiar with, where it appeared that people were pulling suitcases out from under a desk and stuffing ballots or something like that. Uh, What you saw from the Trump supporting lawyers in a presentation to members of the Georgia State Senate was an edited and narrated event. So you saw what they wanted you to see and heard them describe it in a way that fit their narrative. What actually happens is this. If a to avoid voter fraud and stuffing ballots. What actually happens is when a box of votes is opened, it's got to be counted. So they were winding down election night. Box had been opened. They told everybody, we're going to wind down, everybody can go home. It was taken as everybody get out, which wasn't how it was meant. And in fact, people from the Georgia uh, Georgia Secretary of State's office stayed behind to watch. And they counted those ballots before they left because the box had been opened as a matter of voter security. What looked like suitcases to people were not suitcases. It's the contraption into which the ballots fall. And they keep the ballots there for safekeeping. And then those are the boxes they open and they count. They could not go home with those boxes still open. They're not allowed to. So they had to to do this. Unfortunately, the way it was packaged and characterized by people who want you to believe the election was stolen was that in particular, you had two voting vote workers in Fulton County who were bringing in suitcases of ballots and scanning them as if the ballots were fraudulent ballots in suitcases to be scanned to change the vote. That's not what happened at all. And the media was so ready to be dismissive of it. They allowed people to have a bunch of questions and not have those questions answered. And so, yes, I have to concede there are people who never got their answers clarified, but also I think people must also recognize that every election does have problems. And there are lots of people who want to do, well, what if? Okay, you've answered this one. Now, what if? Answer this one. Now, what if? Answer this one. Now, 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 answer this one. And I've done that after the election where I let people call in with questions and I explained each of these scenarios of what was happening, whether it was the situation in Wisconsin or the situation in Pennsylvania. And people just keep coming with more, what about this one? 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 Each is explained. Each has an explanation, a valid explanation. For example, in Wisconsin, people were seen taking ballot boxes out of a voting precinct. They were seen. They were putting them on a truck. 
They were the, they they looked just like the ballot boxes, except it turned out it was a TV crew withdrawing their their camera equipment, and they happened to use the same Pelican cases that in Michigan they used for the ballot boxes. The TV station itself came forward and said that wasn't voting workers, that was us. This is our camera crew. We were breaking down a set. We were moving back to the studio. That's what it was. And then there are some people who won't believe that explanation despite everyone involved coming forward and being identified. They still want to believe the conspiracy theory. So at some point, members of the media just kind of threw their hands up and said, I just, it's it's time to move on. I'm, I'm done. And I'm, that's kind of where I am. I can't, if you want to believe the election was stolen, I can't convince you otherwise. It's kind of like in dealing with an atheist. You, you, they're so militantly in their belief there's no God. Uh, nothing I can do in rational conversation can convince them otherwise that that uh, it's even a credible idea. So you just have to give up and move on. And so many people are because, again, if you want to believe something is so, I can't dissuade you from it. What I can tell you is that there has never been an election without a problem in this country. Going back to George Washington's first election. The question is, are the problems enough to throw in the doubt the election? And we have judges to hear those cases. And a lot of people brought forward those cases to judges who were actually appointed by Donald Trump. And even among Trump-appointed judges, they threw out those cases. And that's the way our system works. You may not like the way the system works, but that's the way the system works. And in a system where it was designed to favor the questioners, with judges who were sympathetic of the president's cause, they couldn't make the case. And so at some point, you got to move on. Whether you want to or not, the world moves on without you. Now, let's go back to the phones here. Betsy, or Betty, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Eric. I enjoyed listening to you. I just have a real quick thing. I don't think David Perdue should be running for governor. I think Brian Kemp has done a wonderful job. And I think Stacey Abrams would much rather run against David Perdue than Brian Kemp because Brian Kemp has already beaten her. And I don't think she'd have a whole lot to say about, oh, my, uh, I, I, I didn't lose to Brian Kemp. So my fact is, is that I like Brian Kemp. I think he's done a wonderful job for Georgia. And David Perdue should just stay out of the race and just, Go do something else and just leave the governorship alone. Well, look, uh, you know, Betty, that that's well said. And, and, and as I've said, he he couldn't beat John Ossoff, and Brian Kemp's already beaten Stacey Abrams. And if the past is the best indicator of the future, well, we know that Brian Kemp has a better chance of beating her than David Perdue does. And that's just it, it's unfortunate we are where we are. But of course, uh, we are where we are because yep. the president wants to nurse a grievance and. David Perdue is going to be his tool to nurse his grievance. And, you know, part of my frustration here as well is that uh, if you listen to David or Perdue's announcement video of why he's running, it's all about Brian Kemp cost us two Senate seats. Brian Kemp, I like the guy, but he hasn't been good for us in, in winning elections. I, you haven't either. At least Kemp won his election. That's my frustration here. Hakeem, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show. Hey, how you doing? Great. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I agree with the one we was saying. I, I wish you could talk some sense into the Republicans, but I just got one statement to say about Senator Purdue running. I mean, Purdue running. Um, I don't think it's going to cost um, Brian Kemp to lose because there's a lot of other voters, even some Democratic voters. I'm African-American. We, Kemp has done really well 
and the fact that the dude was just being his vocal point for for Trump, it's not even his own person. I like the way Herschel is somewhat dissing himself and saying, I'm running for my own. I'm not running for a, a uh, election or anything. Yeah, I'm running for Herschel Walker. But Purdue's already started off talking about we see that he's running just for uh, uh, the president. I voted for the president. But this shenanigans has to stop somewhere. Yeah, that's well said. Yes, it does. it's got to stop somewhere and it should stop now. Thank you very much for that. It, it's listen again. I, I hate talking critically about David Perdue because I genuinely do like the guy. He and his wife are super people. They really are. But I just I this this just and his team. Listen, you talk to his team and they say they got polling that shows he'll do better against Abrams. I guarantee you the Kemp team is going to have polling that shows they do better against Abrams. Do we trust the polling? I can tell you what I do trust, the past being the best indicator of what's going to happen in the future. And the polling that matters is the election day polling of the actual voters. And of them, in 2018, Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams. And in 2020, with maximum Republican turnout, David Perdue didn't beat John Ossoff. He got into a runoff. And despite a six-point shift back to the GOP in the runoff, 427,205 Republicans stayed home and did not run. And Brian Kemp had nothing to do with that. And David Perdue could not beat a guy who likes to dress up in Star Wars costumes. Couldn't even debate him on a stage. In fact, he had one debate, wasn't a great debate performance, and then refused a second debate. He doesn't like the real tale politics either. That's part of the thing here that Kemp, I think, has as an advantage. Kemp likes the retail politics of it. He likes to be out on the campaign trail, meeting with the people, interacting with people. He's very personable. I like David Perdue, but he's not the personable on the campground person. He doesn't like that part of the campaign trail. And Kemp's going to go to every county and be seen in every county and, and hobnob with, with, with people across the state of Georgia. And I don't know that Perdue will. And if he does... How will he come across? I'm reminded of that one encounter with the kid at Georgia Tech where he snatched the cell phone from the kid, and that wound up being another news cycle. I think he's a good dude. I really, really like David Perdue a lot. But I just don't think he needs to do this. I think it makes it more likely Stacey Abrams wins by making Brian Kemp spend all of his money in the primary to defend his seat that he shouldn't have to defend from Republicans. It's the holidays. You deserve a gift, a gift that keeps on giving you joy and comfort every day, all year long, a gift that looks as good as it feels and a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be at work. Let me tell you guys, just forget a script on X chair. I had one of those really expensive multi-thousand dollar desk chairs and I loved it. And I wasn't sure about the X chair, but my gosh, now I've got the X chair and I can't go back. I had to give the other chair to my wife. The X chair has a built-in massager. It's super ergonomic. I ergonomic, ergonomic. I love mine. It's got the massage chair. It can get cool. It can get warm. It can warm my back while I'm sitting in my chair. Your office chair can't do that. It's the perfect time to buy the X chair. And here's their holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X chair just by purchasing it at xchaireric.com now. That's the letter X chair, E-R-I-C-K dot com. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaireric.com and save xchaireric.com. I, a friend of mine sent me this article. Um, wow. 
All right, this is this is in the New York Times. I guess it was yesterday. The the headline is is my little library contributing to the gentrification of my black neighborhood? Uh, she is a journalist in South Central Los Angeles, Erin Aubrey Kaplan. About a year ago, I decided to build a library on my front lawn. By library, I mean one of those little freestanding library boxes that dot lawns and bedroom communities around the country. Charming birdhouse-like structures filled with books that invite neighbors and passerby to take a look or donate a book or both. I'd spotted the phenomenon on walks through upscale, largely white neighborhoods around Los Angeles and immediately resolved to bring it home to Inglewood. Why not? A library is not so much a marker of wealth and whiteness as it is an affirmation of community and cozy small-town camaraderie that Inglewood, a mostly black and Latino city in southwestern Los Angeles County, has plenty of. We deserve no less. Pre-pandemic, Inglewood was gentrifying, another reason I'd been inspired to do the library. I wanted to signal to my longtime neighbors that we had our own ideas about improvement and could carry them out in our own ways. There are organizations that help people build these little libraries, but I did mine independently. I envisioned it as a place for my neighborhood to stay connected through the pandemic. The wooden post on which the library sat was a stake in the ground, literally. Oh, stick with me, people. Stick with me. The response to the library was slow at first. It was the first in the area, and some people mistook it for a bird box, birdhouse, or mailbox. But I was pleased to soon see people stopping by to browse and take home books. Then one morning, glancing out my front window, I saw a young white couple stopped at the library. Instantly, I was flooded with emotions, astonishment, and then resentment and then astonishment at my resentment it all converged into a silent scream in my head get off my lawn the moment jolted me into realizing some things i'm not especially proud of I had set out the library for all who lived here, and even those who didn't, in theory, I would not want to restrict anyone from looking at it or taking books based on race or anything else. But while I had seen white newcomers to the neighborhood here and there, the truth was I hadn't set it out to appeal to white residents. Now that they were in front of my house, curious about this new neighborhood attraction, I didn't know how to feel. By bringing this modern cultural artifact here from white neighborhoods, had I set myself up, set up the neighborhood? Was I contributing to gentrification and sending the wrong message about how I wanted the neighborhood to be? Yes, friends. Yes, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you set up many libraries in your neighborhood, it attracts the whites. Instead of bird seed in the box, it's like crackers in the box for crackers. It's a crackerjack box with little present inside too for the whites called a novel. And you know those whites, they like to read those novels. You set them out, all the whites are going to be moving in like vultures on the ground surrounding your little homemade library. 
best you can do is pour gasoline on it and burn that sucker down before the white people show up and start, I don't know, putting paint on the houses and fixing the neighborhood up. God forbid that should happen. Good gracious, this woman. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. We're going to shift gears dramatically. I will take your phone calls, though. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I must begin here with this admonition. I am not Catholic. I, you know, I kind of chuckle these days with a lot of my friends who are Southern Baptist. I grew up Southern Baptist uh, in a PCA church now, but they're like, oh, you know, those Catholics, are they Christians? Yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Uh, there are just as many people in your church on a weekly basis who aren't going to heaven as there are in the Catholic church, people who call themselves Christians and aren't. Lots of fine Christians who are Catholic. In fact, the Catholics would tell you it's the rest of us who have problems. I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I, I got to set the stage there, but I have to set the stage by pointing out today is the Feast of St. Nicholas Day, and I don't celebrate the feasts or the saints or any of that, but it's a timely day every year for me to do this. Uh, today is essentially the day we commemorate uh, Santa Claus punching the heretics. For those of you unfamiliar with the story, uh, at, at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, Constantine himself, the Emperor of Rome, summoned all the bishops of Christendom to come up with the creedal statement we know as the Nicene Creed. And it was really to answer a question, uh, is Jesus eternal or was he created? Was he the firstborn? As we often say, if, what, if so, what does that mean, the firstborn of creation? Uh, there was a guy named, uh, what, Arius? And he had a little song that had taken over and became very popular. There was a time the sun was not. Now, you and I would see this is bizarre. This is a song, really. But yes, and it became a statement. Uh, there was a time the sun was not. And it was a statement about Jesus, that there was a time that Jesus did not exist. Now, this is in Christendom a heresy, the idea that Jesus was created. Um, he is begotten, not made, of the same substance of the Father and, and of the Holy Spirit, eternal in all ways, always there. Now, this we can get into quibbling over certain theological aspects of it, but the larger idea is that Jesus Christ is eternal, just like uh, God the Father. God the Son is eternal. Jesus Christ, the human being, obviously not. He was conceived. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, his birth. But that uh, he, the second person of the Trinity is eternal. Arius believed he was not. And this so enraged St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, that at the Council of Nicaea, he beat the hell out of Arius, wound up in jail, stripped of his bishopric garments. Legend has it, that overnight, while in jail, all of his bishopric garments were delivered to him by angels. And the next morning, the jail warden found him in his robes, knew it was a sign from God that he was legit. And Constantine, who had ordered his arrest, had to let him back in the council. Now, there's your mythology and your history altogether. We do know it is documented history that St. Nicholas beat the hell out of the Arian heretics at the Council of Nicaea, meaning he's a hero. He's coming to deliver presents and punches, and he's all out of presents at the Council of Nicaea. But I bring this up because on this day, every year, I tell you all the same thing. Why is Christmas 
on December 25th. If you're like me, you were raised with the idea that the Christians were co-opting the Roman holidays. As Christianity began to spread through the Roman Empire, the Christians started adopting the Roman traditions and the holidays in order to get people to embrace Christendom. And it was a way to convert the masses. That's how I grew up. That's what I learned. But turns out there's actually a growing body of evidence as archaeologists wade through the Roman Empire that that's not actually the case. And in fact, it may be that the Romans put Sol Invictus, the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, on December 25th to stop the rise of the Christians. In Egypt, less than 300 years after the death of Jesus, Christians had begun celebrating his birth in the spring. The earliest reference to Christmas actually come about around 200 AD, well before the establishment of Christendom within the the Roman Empire. It's a time Christians weren't actually incorporating religious traditions of their own. By 300 AD, a lot of Christians were already celebrating Jesus' birth on December 25th, and within 100 years, it was on the record. By 400 AD, everybody was celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Now, a lot of people in the 19th century started saying, well, this is probably the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. That was a big Roman god. Emperor uh, Aurelian loved the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. That's what they wanted. They saw Invictus. Uh, But actually, there's a lot of evidence that Emperor Aurelian, who was noted, among other things, for the persecution of the Christians, planted Saul Invictus on December 25th during Saturnalia uh, to say to the Christians, actually, it's this is the guy you're celebrating. It's one of the Roman gods. Now, what you need to understand is that in the early Roman Empire, around 200 AD, the Christians really could not care less when Jesus' birthday was. They had set it at December 25th, and they did not celebrate it. Why? Because celebrating birthdays actually was something the Romans did. Uh, wedding cakes were something the Romans did. Things like this, the early Christians avoided it all um, because they did not want to be dragged into pagan society. So while the Christians had set Jesus' birthday on December 25th, they weren't celebrating it. And that's kind of notable for why they think it was December 25th. Now, why would they think it was? Follow along with me here. What was important to the early Christians was not Jesus's birth, but Jesus's death because of the resurrection. They wanted to find out what day of the year actually Easter was. Around 200 AD, Tertullian, one of the famous early church theologians, reported that Jesus died on the 14th of Nisan, the Roman calendar. That would have been, when you do the conversions of the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, March 25th. Why is that important? Well, the Jews of the time had a belief that a prophet died on the day he was conceived. So if you died on March 25th, that would have been your date of conception as well if you were a prophet. And the early Christians, who were all Jewish converts, they believed that Jesus was a prophet. He was the son of God. He was prophet. He was son. He was king, uh, prophet, priest, and king. So if he died on March 25th, that's the date of conception. 
the conception piece was ancillary to it, but they all believed it. They really wanted to know what day he died. So the 20, March 25th, well, nine months, even in the Roman times, they knew nine months conception. You fast forward nine months, where do you land from March 25th? December 25th, thereabouts. So the early Christian church, believing that a prophet died on the date of on, on the same day of conception, believed Jesus must have been conceived on March 25th and therefore died on March 25th. Now, remember there were big divisions in the early church. There was the eastern half and the western half of the empire. The western half of the empire, Tertullian represented. The eastern half of the empire actually was coming about when did Jesus die on a different date. They wanted his date of conception in order to figure out his date of death. Luke 1 tells us that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was in the priestly division of Abasia. If you know when the temple fell in 70 AD and who the priest, who, which class of priest was in the temple that day, you worked your way all the way back to where was Zachariah. Well, according to these church historians of the early church in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, he would have been in the temple in late September, early October. Now, later historians actually think it was June, but nonetheless, the Gospel of John or Gospel of Luke tells us that when Zacharias left the temple, his wife conceived, and then six months later, the angel Gabriel went to the city of Galilee, to the, a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And Gabriel tells Mary she's with child. So, six months after Zacharias leaves the temple would have been the end of March. Fast forward nine months, you're in the end of December for the birth of Jesus. Well, when they looked at what Tertullian, who was widely respected around the Roman Empire said, they said, oh my gosh, look, he came up with March 25th. We've already concluded it had to be the end of March. So there it is. Jesus would have died on March 25th, which means he would have been conceived on March 25th, according to their tradition. And so by 200 AD, a hundred years before the widespread adoption of Christianity in the Roman Empire, 150 years before it's really the legal religion of the Roman Empire, you've already got Christians saying, yeah, he had to have been born around December 25th. We won't celebrate it, though, because that's what Romans do. As Roman society becomes Christianized under Constantine and then becomes absolutely a Christian empire by the reign of Theodosius, well, they've already got it figured out when his birthday is, and they've decided it's okay to celebrate birthday. So let's have a party and celebrate his birthday. And so they did. The light coming into the world at the darkest time of year. It's all very metaphorical. Now, here's the bottom line. Do we know when Jesus of Nazareth, who is a widely reported, widely accepted human in history, do we know when his birthday is? We have no earthly idea. We do not know in any way, shape, or form when Jesus' birthday was. But the early church, they thought they had it figured it out. They thought they had it right. It doesn't matter whether they were right or wrong. That's what they thought, and they came upon December 25th as the date. They did not do it because of Saturnalia. They did not do it because of Sol Invictus. As so many of us, when we were young, we learned. In fact, it is modern archaeological evidence that shows Actually, the Christians probably set Jesus' date at December 25th, and Emperor Aurelian began reshaping the Roman calendar of holidays 
to try to co-opt it back and stop the spread of Christianity. Aurelian began one of the first major persecutions after Nero of Christians within the Roman Empire, in large part because they could not stamp these idiots out. They just kept spreading everywhere. And so the Romans got more and more ruthless with them. And like pruning a flower, the more they were persecuted, the more they began to spread. It was crazy. And the Romans could not fathom all of the awfulness of what they were doing to these people. And they just kept sprouting up across the empire. And so they began changing their holidays to try to tell people, no, 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 no. Actually, the Christians, they're co-opting us. And one of those days appears to be December 25th, the Feast of Saul Invictus, also the birth of Christ, according to the early church. Whether they got it right or wrong is irrelevant. We know that this man, whether you believe he was son of God or not, this actually was a man who history, by all the standards of history, showed lived. And the church set him as being born at that time. That, my friends, is why December 25th is the date we set aside for Christmas. Now, what are you going to buy for people at Christmas? I have a suggestion. If you got friends who they got, well, they don't have an exhaust fit in their kitchen or they've got a cat or a dog and they've got pet odors in their house, what about the Eden Pure Thunderstorm? Right now, you can get three of them. And you can get them for less than $200 and save $200. It's an incredible deal from Eden Pure Deals. So you get an air purifier that cleans the air, gets rid of the dust, the mildew, the mold, the bacteria, the viri, the viruses, and eliminates odors, pet odors, tobacco odors, you name it. Uh, You can get three of them. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Click on my name, Eric Erickson, and you will see the Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack. Put it in your cart, and at checkout, there's a discount code box. At the discount code box, you put in... Eric three, E-R-I-C-K and the number three, no space. You don't write out the word three, use my name, E-R-I-C-K, Eric, and then the number three, all one phrase, one word, Eric three. It's EdenPureDeals.com. Put the Eden Pure Thunderstorm three pack in your cart. You will save $200. You will get all three for less than $200 and you will get free shipping with the discount code at checkout, Eric three. Well, if you want a sense of the national news import of David Perdue jumping in the race, to challenge Brian Kemp. Um, I am going to be on CNN tonight at 8.20 to talk about it. I've got a media request from Fox News, and I've got a media request from Time Magazine as well uh, to talk about this race. It's going to be, it it certainly has national attention, uh, a Republican challenging the incumbent Republican governor claiming that the Republican governor is the one who cost the Senate seats when the challenger himself was the senator who lost. That that definitely turns things on its head. Uh, you know, let me say this, though, as well. Brian Kemp doesn't have a lock on this. You know, I'm going to support Kemp on this. Don't want to badmouth Purdue. I like the guy. Judging by my emails, though, a lot of people are hacked off at him doing this. But uh, the reality here is that uh, Brian Kemp does have issues with his own base. So he he doesn't have a lock on this. And there will be an aggressive effort by Trump supporters to persuade people to vote for David Perdue. Uh, the problem here, you got to remember, is that Donald Trump said he would prefer Stacey Abrams to Brian Kemp. So that kind of sets the parameters for his support of David Perdue. And by the way, uh, he's released a statement about David Perdue supporting Brian Kemp, but is not yet endorsing him. I assume he'll endorse, but has not used the E word. 
in his initial statement. The Kemp team needs to understand they don't have this in the bag, and I think they get that. I think they do. There are a number of people aggrieved because of COVID, because of the election, because of gun rights, you name it, uh, who want Brian Kemp to do more or don't think he did enough. I am in the camp that he did everything he could possibly do to improve the state over COVID and has definitely advanced gun rights in the state, even as I support constitutional carry. But you know what? There's a legislative session coming, and it's very possible in the legislative session that the Kemp campaign could orchestrate a positive agenda and either have Purdue scuttle the positive agenda, giving Kemp a talking point against him, or stand aside and let Kemp's agenda go through, which would give Kemp something to run on and say, David Purdue did not do these things. I did these things. That That's very possible. Stacey Abrams essentially baited David Perdue into going on and getting out there and doing this. So he has, and he has before a legislative session. If the legislative session is a failure, does Purdue's team get blamed for scuttling any positive initiatives out of the legislature to try to hurt Kemp and thereby hurt the voters? Or do they let Kemp get a good agenda? I mean, this is going to be a chess pieces all over the board here. Uh, my sense is that the majority of the Republicans in the legislature will stand with Kemp. And they will pass an agenda that gives Kemp something to run on that's positive for conservatives out there. Uh, at least they should. Uh, keep in mind the person who David Perdue helps more than anyone else in this situation, though, is David Ralston. Ralston's not popular with the base. And Ralston can play kingmaker one way or the other by obstructing the agenda or passing the agenda by giving one side a win or the other. And it puts Ralston exactly where he likes to be, the man who everyone has to ingratiate themselves to. And then that all helps Stacey Abrams as Republicans embolden David Ralston. It's going to be very strange to see this shape up in a legislative session. I predict the Georgia legislative session will not be as eventful as otherwise would have been as both sides try to block each other from getting any credit. I still think that the odds are in Kemp's favor. He is, after all, the incumbent Republican governor, and he actually is good on the campaign trail, and Purdue hates the campaign trail. And it showed in 2020 where, again, he lost to a guy who dresses up as a Star Wars character and didn't want to debate him. I think this was misguided. And the reactions I'm seeing from listeners who are emailing in furiously, they think it's a bad idea too. It has become a very national, very big story today, though, as Donald Trump begins his run to settle scores from 2020, starting here in Georgia, risking a Stacey Abrams win in Georgia because of it. I'll be on CNN tonight at 8.20 Eastern. Uh, I guess I'll be interviewed by Time Magazine and The Washington Post here shortly and probably on Fox tomorrow. I'll keep you guys posted. As always, you can text DATA to 33777 and get my daily email where I'll be writing about this. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution. If you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business, First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. 
They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com.